Welcome to season two of the Therapist of Millions podcast, where we get under the skin and into the brains of leading therapists and coaches from around the globe to find out what makes them tick and how they are helping those on the front lines of mental health around the world. Hello and welcome to the Therapist to Millions weekly podcast where we get into the brains and under the skin of therapists and coaches all around the world, the leading therapists all around the world. Uh, And today, all the way from California, we have Emily Parks, who is the founder and CEO of POP, which is a growing community of patients living with rare and and or chronic illnesses who also identify as living with medical PTSD. She is a medical PTSD advocate, patient advocate and public speaker, and she graduated from Boston University in 2016 with a bachelor's in psychology and currently works at UCSF uh, Wheel Institute for Neurosciences in the Department of Psychiatry. Uh, Emily lived with chronic intestinal pseudo-obstruction until receiving an isolated small bowel transplant from MedStar Georgetown Transplant Institute in 2020. And her lived experience as a patient living with chronic illness has given her insight opportunities to collaborate with hospitals and healthcare professionals across multiple healthcare systems. Now, in her spare time, Emily enjoys ballroom dancing, which we're going to be talking about, and cooking <laughs> and boba tea. Emily, welcome to the show. How are you doing? I'm good. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Very well indeed. So, listen, what types of uh, therapy and coaching do you practice? Obviously, we're going to talk mainly about POP, I think. Um, mm-hmm. And tell us about your story. What's your lived experience? What What got you to where you are now? Yeah, so I was born with a myopathic intestinal pseudo-obstruction, which is a very long word. Uh, Essentially, the muscles in my GI system were too weak to uh, function, so I couldn't really absorb anything I ate or drank, and it primarily affected my intestine, but a little bit of my stomach. So I was on parenteral nutrition for about 27 years. Um, That's how I got all my... um, nutritional needs and hydration needs met. But um, for folks that are on parental nutrition, uh, they may know that the longer you're on it, the more complications you're at risk for. And I developed um, complications such as um, uh, IV infections very frequently that always landed me in the hospital. Um, I had reduced vascular access, and then it was also starting to uh, put a number on my liver And these are um, all the criteria to meet an intestinal transplant. Um, Actually, you only need to meet one of those three criteria, and I meet all three. So um, I decided to get a transplant in a pandemic. (laughs) (laughs) Um, (laughs) I had the time, you know. (laughs) Some people moved. Some people, you know, refurbished their entire house. I got a new organ. (laughs) Um, it's kind of funny because my my older brother got a new house. My younger got, brother got a new motorcycle. <laughs> you got a new organ. I love it. I got a new organ. <laughs> yeah. So throughout um, my experience being in and out of the hospital, multiple hospitals, um, and growing from a pediatric to a young adult, um, I was very, I was still like, in school, getting good grades. Um, That took sacrifices. I was still very active and I didn't really want to make much of a compromise um, and still live my quality of life. But I was facing a lot of, um, oh, you should come see us um, instead of go to class. And then when I would get there and also in previous experiences, you know, sometimes 
you're just not listened to by doctors. You're not seen as, as credible. Um, there's also this kind of trauma that you can experience navigating the healthcare system, especially with uh, chronic or rare diseases, because you're dealing with multiple departments. And unfortunately, a lot of our um, hospitals in the U.S., uh, and that's me saying this from a patient perspective, there seems to be a communication issue. Um, mm -hmm. It's not easy for doctors to transmit information to each other. And so it can feel a lot of like patients have to kind of piece the pieces together, but then if they're not seen as credible, um, then you feel kind of stuck. So that's, that's kind of like a gist of um, the struggle, but with that, there can also be medical gaslighting, which we're hearing a lot of in um, recent times. Um, but then especially as a pediatric, I think that's where a lot of my medical trauma came from. Um, I didn't understand a lot of what was going on around me. I was being poked and prodded and I didn't understand. My parents explained the best that they could. There were times when I was held down against my will. Um, I remember even as um, a teen and a young adult being um, told that my life expectancy was low. It was just very kind of traumatic. And what do you do with all of these emotions and this kind of feeling of being out of control in this um, healthcare system, which in the U.S., our healthcare system needs to be reformed. Mm. And so how do you live your life when you're kind of stuck in this system and it's uh, hard to navigate it. And the people that are providing you care, um, sometimes because of the level of communication that needs to be met, um, sometimes doctors could be a little more kinder with words, um, a little bit more selective with timing because it's a very, being diagnosed or going through a chronic illness is very traumatic in and of itself. And so we need more compassion in the healthcare system as well. That's kind of where things started for me. So after my transplant, I was in recovery for about four months and I needed something to do so I wouldn't go batty. And I was like, well, I've been thinking about this and it started with an Instagram account. <laughs> wow. So you you already had your psychology degree, obviously. Mm. What, when did you kind of like make the decision to go into the mental health field and help others? Um, so I, my career has been in behavioral health. So currently I work as an employment specialist and I've done that for a couple of years as well as some crisis, um, services. Um, I come from a behavioral health care family. Um, there are multiple members of my family who work in behavioral health. And I think it was just kind of for for her, I feel like I was a little bit kind of um, groomed <laughs> into <laughs> behavioral health by my family. Um, but this was something that was impacting me. And it was actually through ballroom dance that we'll get to that um, I learned about my own medical trauma. And I was like, oh, my God, this is real. Because for the longest time, I was like, this is my experience, but it never really occurred to me that it could be other people's experiences. And that was the motivator to actually start saying something and doing something. So okay, let's go down that route though. So how did you find out yeah. through ballroom dancing? <laughs> so I started ballroom dancing when I moved to Maryland um, a 
in 2018 and I didn't know anybody. I moved there for work. Um, and so I started ballroom dancing lessons just because I had always kind of thought about it. And I great was way to meet so, people. <laughs> <laughs> it's a great way to meet people. Yeah. Um, great community. Um, and so I remember the first six months was just horrible. I hated it. I was so rigid. I was so stiff. My poor instructor, he didn't know what to do with me. <laughs> I was just so, I wouldn't make eye contact with anybody that I danced with. It was almost like when people got to a certain level, a certain closeness to me, it almost like shut off. And then that's, I think, where I was like, these are like significant trauma responses that I'm seeing within myself. So where's this coming from? And so I was so rigid for a long time and I, I really would dance and just leave. I wouldn't socialize. And then slowly I began to kind of process, I would say. And I realized that my, how I realized my own medical trauma was I actually uh, am a little fearful of men. And that's because a lot of my providers um, and a lot of the providers who held me down or, you know, could have been a little more gentle or um, accommodating to me as a pediatric, they were males. And so I was being poked and prodded um, by a lot of guys. And, you know, because I was so sick, I wasn't held as much. Um, so there was a negative association. So I remember dancing with my dear instructor, Evan. I'll never forget him. And I'm dancing. And as you know, in ballroom dance, we're doing the tango. And he's he's walking right towards me. And it's my job to get out of the way. And he and there's this realization that I'm like, Evan doesn't care about my organs. <laughs> he doesn't want to poke and prod and feel my stomach. He doesn't want to make an assessment or judge or tell me how to spend my time afterwards. The guy just wants to dance. And you know what? All these guys just want to dance. And you know what? Maybe there's guys that don't care about your organs. <laughs> <laughs> and I know it sounds like it sounds a little silly, but I was like, oh my God. <laughs> and that's when I was like, okay, I need to do something. I need to like look into this. I need to look in the mirror. I need to invest in what is going on. And that's how everything kind of started. That's how I was like, okay, let me look at other ways that I am fearful of something and it could be connected to my medical history. And so I was kind of piecing it together, I was seeing the trauma response in myself and kind of working backwards. So I love that. So it was your own psychological training that actually kind of tipped you off. Yeah, you I kind of accidentally put myself in exposure therapy <laughs> <laughs> so t let's talk about pop so obviously you set pop up to to help other yeah. people um so where did when did that start and how did how did you do it so pop started uh in 2020 um it started it was the name of the instagram account um it was a longer name but i i shortened it um just for simplicity um so pop provides um we have things that are going on in the front and then things that are going on in the back is very much growing still. It's very much kind of a, a passion project. So right now we are offering discussion groups. Um, I will say that they um, come at a fee currently, but um, we also have the Instagram account. We're building modules for, I, I'm working with a team 
Um, Chuck and Brenda, and we're building modules for providers, and then we're going to build modules for patients, uh, submitting applications to speak. Um, it's still very much kind of I'm, I'm focusing right now with POP on bringing up the curriculum and the training and um, kind of like the, the kind of more clinical aspect yep. and then reapproaching the patient population once I feel more prepared because POP was very much one of those things that was spur of the moment. And I was like, I have no idea. And now that there's more of a guideline there's like, there's moments when we're building things and then we have an, an interface. So right now we're, we have exciting things coming down the pipeline, even um, maybe some research going on, which I know I've been talking about for a long time, but um, that's what we have right now. And then um, just building partnerships with other um, rare disease and chronic illness organizations. So what's, what about the work that you're doing at the University of Central uh, at, uh, San Francisco? Uh, so I'm an employment specialist. Um, so I'm in, uh, so I work at UCSF Citywide Case Management. Um, and I'm an employment specialist. I've been here for about a year, and I provide um, direct employment services to people with a severe and persistent mental illness. But they also face uh, multiple. They could face multiple other barriers, such as um, addiction, uh, criminal background, uh, housing needs. Uh, other medical needs. So um, we work with case managers, um, but it's kind of a combination of uh, training people for work and it's what kind of work they want to do. So we ask them, what do you want to do? And we uh, match them with that. And then of course, people change their minds. So we're flexible to change minds and jobs as well. Um, and we provide training, we help them build resumes and applications, interviewing skills, and then uh, once they get the job, we help with um, them keeping the job, whatever that may be. Oh, wow. That's that's like an end-to-end -end service. I mean, it sounds mm -hmm. similar to my partner. She she runs the Recovery, Recovery and Everyday Skills Academy at St. Andrews, which is the, yeah. one of the biggest mental health um charities in the UK and and they uh, work with lived experience peer, peer support workers to provide training to to people with lived experience to basically get them back into work and um but it sounds like yours is end-to-end -end, which is which is amazing yeah and we have a few we have um peers working in the office as well um yeah. we just actually hired a couple of peers so UCSF is very much on board with um, hiring peers, which I absolutely love. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, fantastic. Now, in terms of, because obviously you've got your 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 kind of like your full-time job and then you've got your, yeah. your pop. Let's let's talk about the pop. So how are you expanding that? I mean, obviously you've got mm -hmm. this this uh, uh, training that you're talking about. What are you doing to market that? I'm sure obviously the Instagram is, uh, how many followers have you now got on Instagram? 630. Okay. So definitely room to grow. Engaged. Yeah. 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 So right now, um, the, the focus of the Instagram, um, which we also uh, post on LinkedIn is, uh, uh, voices of medical PTSD. So, um, it's a direct quote. Um, and then it links to the source. Uh, we're finding great, um, response to that as well as, um, posting about research connecting, um, you know, struggles with, 
PTSD to different um, illnesses, whether it's somebody who uh, I think there was a uh, there was research recently on um, the ICU and the ER are some of the most traumatic places for people, um, especially when people wake up in the ICU um, and especially folks that uh, caught COVID and unfortunately had to receive ICU services. Um, And for anybody who's been in the ICU, it's just very um, discombobulating from my Mm -hmm. experiences. The only, uh, most of the time I'm thankful that I was so sick that I was out of it to not really remember much of the ICU. Um, Sorry. Yeah. Go ahead. Now using hypotheticals and, and no identifying factors from either role, can you give us an example of one of the success stories? One of the success stories. Ooh. Well, I do want to talk about one person without naming them. Um, but she started with, um, so first we, now we have um, more kind of formal discussion groups, but we did form, uh, before that kind of have um, smaller like uh, Zoom discussion groups. Mm-hmm. And uh, she was very attentive to all of them. Um, She wasn't very um, uh, involved in advocacy at the time. And now she's just like, I see her all over Instagram (laughs) and LinkedIn. And um, I think, you know, it just kind of helped her to realize that she wasn't alone. And that's really the goal is that you're not alone because the experience of, you know, there's a lot of there's like white coat syndrome and there's kind of survivor's guilt. And so it can feel very isolating. Like, Oh, maybe I'm a bad patient or I don't deserve the care or I'm annoying them too much or I have too many needs. Um, So we can kind of almost gaslight ourselves too, because we are such high need utilizers Mm -hmm. um, that it can feel very isolating that like nobody else feels like this because I'm just, you know, it's just, I have so many needs. Nobody can help me when really a lot of people feel like that. Uh, you know, there's even um, medical PTSD and medical trauma is very prevalent in the EDS community. They face a lot of gaslighting, a lot of, um, they're just not believed. Um, and so there is, um, we are, hoping to do kind of like a focus more into um, EDS. But right now we are just kind of the biggest thing that has happened recently is the launch of the discussion groups. And so we're just kind of trying to get that to build up slowly. Fantastic. Now you've already talked about doing some online content. What other plans for expansion do you have? So we have the module that we're building. We Mm -hmm. just made the first draft. And so we're going to do our edits and have it reviewed by um, a couple of professors. And then our plan is to start um, partnering with other organizations, start um, presenting at uh, like provider conferences, um, more clinically driven conferences. My personal goal is hopefully eventually um, present at APA, the American Psychiatric Association, or um, the National, or NATCON, um, the National Institute for Mental Illness, um, their national convention, and kind of, right now we're very much in the scope of doctors who deal with physical ailments, but I would 
love for some kind, because what we're doing with the module is we are using the DSM-5 revised version of PTSD, which is very different from, well, it's not very different, but it's been recategorized from the DSM-4. And so we're directly taking that and comparing it because a lot of times when people think of PTSD, we think of um, survivors of war or domestic violence, Mm -hmm. Um, but putting it almost to like taking the diagnosis and being like, okay, now put it in a hospital. So we're literally putting examples. We're saying like, okay, so veterans, they have memory loss. Well, patients, they could have memory loss too during um, stressful clinic visits. So what do we do about that? We give them journals. Um, we ha- have them write their questions uh, ahead of time. You know, it's it's just kind of putting it in a different context. And so it would be absolutely wonderful to bring that to behavioral health. But right now we're focusing on physical health. But I am excited to say that I will be at the my first American Psychiatric Association uh, conference uh, this year in San Francisco. Fantastic! Yeah, so I'm excited doing, to talk to some folks about it. Have you thought about doing any online conferences? You could actually create your own. Oh, oh, making a conference if I have time, maybe <laughs> one day. I've oh, done you... a lot of online speaking. Yeah. Um, because of COVID. Um, and that's really kind of what, because of, um, because of full-time work, that's what I'm focusing on as well. I love that. You did, you did actually spark an idea in my own mind, as you were saying that I was thinking, hmm, I wonder if Therapist Millions could do a conference so we could invite guest speakers and do like a day long event. <laughs> invite me. Yeah, we could get a speciality <laughs> subject. That would be a really nice idea. I think you've just, uh, you've just kickstarted an idea there. <laughs> I'll come to London. Yeah. Now I think we no do problem. a virtual one to start with. Oh, okay. Well, maybe uh, I'll come to London anyway. Yeah, absolutely. Well, listen. Just for the sake for Big Ben. And you know what? One of the great things would be is we could get people because we've had quite a few therapists, obviously, on on the podcast who yeah. who are talking about, and we hope that they will be writing their book, producing their book um actually you know releasing their book and it could be a really good deadline for them to actually get it done by because obviously if they have the speaking and you know opportunity and they say and here's my new book what a great way are you thinking of writing one i'm I'm, I'm sure you're just focusing on the module at the minute but yes not right now um (laughs) so my goal uh career-wise um or educationally is to um get a phd in clinical psychology and just kind of continue on with medical trauma. Um, right now I'm in a medical trauma certificate program. It's completely online. It's at Xavier University. Um, it's really the only like higher education curriculum about medical trauma out there that I can find. Um, so finding a PhD program where I can kind of piece things together a little bit. Um, and then ultimately I, I've kind of been thinking about the idea of using um, the a combination of talking about medical trauma and the uh, voices of medical PTSD to make a book together. A great idea. Well, you know, I, we, we often have uh, therapists and, and coaches who come on, on the show who their story is fundamental 
to you know what they're doing now but i don't yeah. think i've ever had anyone like you who who it's so fundamental it's yeah. like everything that happened to me is currently where i'm at and this is what yeah. I'm helping others. i absolutely love that what is your favorite therapy or coaching book that you've ever read and why i really enjoyed my grandmother's hands my grandmother's yeah um let me look up the author real quick. My grandmother's hand. We'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. My grandmother's hand. Resme Minikim. Um, he's a trauma therapist and he, it's a book that talks about, um, like, um, trauma and racism. Mm. And it talks, um, about like, uh, dirty pain and clean pain and, you know, police bodies, black bodies, uh, white bodies, and kind of some of the possible like trauma around it um i'm not a trauma therapist so um but i really enjoyed it because it it first gave me more perspective on as a white body but then a lot of the breathing techniques and different kind of coping mechanisms i thought were excellent for any kind of trauma response i thought it was a great book no matter who you are you can take something away about it, whether it's um, about racism in the U.S. right now, or if it, you want to take away something completely different, you can walk away with a new breathing technique and a new way to kind of see yourself. Awesome. Yeah, we'll put a link to that in the show notes. Uh, now, obviously, you said you're a ballroom dancer. Is that how you look after your own mental health? Do you have any other tips of looking after your own mental health? Um, I sleep. So my, <laughs> Very good for you. which at first sounds bad, <laughs> but so one big thing that I've learned about myself is, so, you know, we have the standard eight hours of sleep. I actually operate better closer to nine and 10 hours. So making sure I get the sleep I need to feel like I'm not brushed in the morning. Um, definitely from like coming off of parental nutrition and having to relearn how to eat, um, eating enough, drinking enough, um, eating the right things, drinking the right things. And then I think just staying connected to people, um, especially, uh, so the CDC in the U.S. has just um, said that the um, COVID is no longer a public health concern. So this is three years that we're coming out of, of a lot of isolation on um, their uh, they're saying that there's a loneliness pandemic and, um, you know, it's just checking in with each other, even if it's just sending a meme to somebody, even if it's just a quick happy birthday, it doesn't have to be a big thing, but like those small check-ins really help each other. It's kind of yeah. like, oh, somebody's thinking about me enough to reach out even a little bit it doesn't have to be like oh let's get lunch let's go on a trip it can just be like hey <laughs> did you know that um you know here's some cool trivia fact <laughs> and it's yeah. like lol that's it but speaking of facts tell us a fact that blows our mind or tell us a joke that's one of a kind to win three months free membership to the therapist to millions 
I'm going to tell you a joke that oh, I came yes, up with when I was seven. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> My brothers always rolled their eyes. So why do they call it a jalapeno? I don't know. Because you're going to holla in pain, yo. <laughs> <laughs> Please cancel me. <laughs> no, that's good. I like that one. That, that, that's a dad joke. I like that one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's good. Dad jokes weren't in then. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to use that one on the weekend with my kids. <laughs> and finally, how can people get hold of you? Uh, so... Um... I'll just give you my direct email. It's Emily, E-M-I-L-Y-P-R-K at B-U dot E-D-U. You can also find me on Instagram, Emmy in the basement. Um, also pop, um, which is pop underscore medical PTSD. Our website is popmedicalptsd.org, all one word. And um, yeah, that's where everything is. If you're interested in anything, reach out to me. Um, I'm I'm always happy to hear from folks. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for taking the time uh, out of your day to to share with us. And for anyone who's listening on the on the on the podcast, check out the YouTube channel because she is very fit and very healthy and looking really well. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. <laughs> thank you so so much for taking the time out today. Thank you so much. All right, Emily. Appreciate you. Okay. Have a good one. Bye bye. Take care. Bye. If you would like to take part as a guest on the Therapist of Millions podcast, simply email me, damien at therapistofmillions.com. That's Damien with two A's, as all of the guests on the show will get three months free access to our Therapist of Millions membership worth $300. So if you would like to know how to write a best-selling book, secure a TEDx talk, create membership sites with content you don't even have to create, build client acquisition funnels, effective lead magnets, or your very own podcast, and way more besides, why not head over to thetherapistofmillions.com and join our community of like-minded professionals. And if you'd like an additional $20 off your membership, simply type in the coupon code PODCASTLISTENER at the checkout.